I want to welcome you to our fifth presentation of Three Angels, One Message. Yep, that's it. Uh, Three Angels, One Message. We started last weekend, Friday night, continued Sabbath morning, and then Saturday evening we picked up. We have been taking a concentrated look at Revelation 14, verses 6 and onward, known as the Three Angels' Message. Last night, we continued that by looking at the third angel, angel number three, and it was titled, Angel Three, Revelation and the Mark of the Beast. If you were not here for that, you can find the presentation online because we did stream it on our Facebook page. We will conclude this evening, or we will conclude our series this evening at 7 o'clock, where we will look at a presentation, a brief, more laid-back, lighter-hearted message, uh, just simply titled, Don't Worry, Look to Jesus. Uh, Don't Worry, Look to Jesus. I think that's a great way to end a collection of passages that sometimes people get a little frazzled over. So we're going to end on a high note. I encourage you to come out. Close the Sabbath with us. We will, uh, we will have uh, a Q&A session. Um, it doesn't have to be about these passages. If there's something else that you've been wanting to ask, bring your questions. Uh, we will take some time to go over it. I expect it will, it will not be as long, certainly, as last night or some of our other uh, discussions. Uh, but for now, we will get into this morning's topic, One Message, God's Final Call. Uh, Before we do that, let's have another word of prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful Sabbath day. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for these messages of warning, uh, warning of things to come or things that are currently happening, but not just to scare us, uh, to let us know so that when we are faced with a decision, Lord, I know that you desire us to make a decision in your favor. And so it is to that end that I pray In Jesus' name, amen Amen. and amen. We read in the Bible the account of God delivering his people from the bondage of slavery in the nation of Egypt. After plagues had been heaped upon Egypt, Miracles were worked on behalf of Israel. God finally led them to the base of Mount Sinai. There, God would declare to his people, Israel, his intention on being their God and desiring them to be his people. He would speak his law to them and they would pledge their fealty to him. After this, God invited Moses alone to join him on the mount. If you'll remember, there were bounds placed around, and we don't know, maybe there were ropes, maybe there were rock piles, maybe there was just simply, look at that shadow, don't go there. Either way, the Bible says there were bounds, and no one was supposed to step foot on the mount, not even the animals, or they would die. So Moses alone was invited to join God on the mountain. While there, Moses received from God the Ten Commandments uh, written into stone with the finger of God. Uh, He received instructions for the tabernacle, instructions on how to govern the people, 
But for 40 days, he got to enjoy a personal communion with God. That's awesome. 40 days, Moses got to hear God speak to him. And in turn, I'm sure he spoke back. I can imagine Moses and God having a dialogue, not just simply a monologue. Well, while he was gone, the people grew restless. Most of us know the story. Impatient with Moses' delay on the mountain, the people cried out to Aaron, Moses' brother, to make them an idol after the ones that they had seen in Egypt, that they might worship a god, lowercase g, that they could see. Moses has been gone for so long. His return is delayed. We don't know what's happened to him. Maybe God has struck him down. Give us a God that we can see. Tragically, Aaron did as they asked, and then they blasphemously declared it the God that had delivered them from Egypt, and they worshipped it with gross profanity. It was debaucherous what these people did so soon after being miraculously delivered from centuries of slavery. God does tell Moses what is going on in the camp. Moses descends from the mountain to find the people violating the covenant that they had pledged themselves to just 40 days prior. That is not long, my friends. Uh, This could be a conversation of how long does it take us to break our covenants? It took that whole host of people 40 days. Do we even last that long sometimes? I wonder. I wonder. Well, Moses did confront them. He confronted Aaron. Moses brought a swift end to the heathenism, and then he challenged the people. He challenged them with this call. Standing before the gate of the camp, Moses said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Short. Simple, direct. Y'all have done wrong. We're not even going to debate it. Who's on the Lord's side? That's it. Because after ever, they could could have talked about the style of music they were using. Joshua thought it sounded like war. They could have talked about whether the, the style of dance was appropriate or whether there was too much movement of the hips. They could have talked about the earrings, and at this point we know they had to remove the jewelry. They could have talked about the clothing. They could have talked about the arrangement of the tents. They could have talked about a whole host of things. Moses didn't care. Because when it came right down to it, what was the challenge? Who is on the Lord's side? Well, stand by me. Moses knew where he stood. Do you know where you stand today? Because that challenge rings to us through history. Like ancient Israel, worship. Worship is at the heart of what we have to consider. Because they did not just violate their covenant in word. They violated it in who they recognized as God and how they worshipped that false God. Worship was at the heart of of Israel's problem back then, and it worship is at the heart of what we consider today. Like ancient Israel, 
the more time passes without the return of Jesus, the more we are tempted to turn our attentions elsewhere. We are tempted to say, like them, the return is delayed. Give us a God that we can see. There are many different gods that we turn our attentions to. We have already studied the importance of worship in our passages of Scripture. In Revelation 14, we're going to review them very briefly. And and forgive me for the sake of my throat, I'm not going to read verbatim. We're going to highlight things. Revelation 14, 6 starts with an angel flying in the midst of heaven with the everlasting gospel. That gospel is the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. End of sentence, period. Can't do anything more on top of it to perfect what's already perfected. And worship is involved in it. We are to proclaim that to everyone on earth. The angel continues, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. Worship is how you demonstrate your fear, your respect, your awe of God and how you want to glorify him. You worship him. And you don't just worship him as a, as a wise man. You worship him as creator. Creator, sovereign of the universe. And you do that in light of a cosmic judgment. Because it has come. Not might, not maybe, but has. The second angel tells us this, that fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's made nations drink the wine of the wrath or the passion of her sexual immorality. We've studied that Babylon represents an apostate religious system, a religious system saturated with confusion. A little bit of truth, a little bit of error, a little bit of, eh, doesn't really matter, just go along with it. It's confusion. That's Babylon. Babylon has rejected the message of the first angel, right, faithful worship, And so the second angel's message announces that she has fallen from God's favor. And you don't want to be caught up in that. Last night we looked at this. The third angel says that if anyone, and there is again at the heart of this, worships the beast. Do we get the point? Worship, worship. It it, it comes up like that broken record, if, if the kids know what a record is anymore. If the broken record skips, or if you had, uh, do we remember the, the CD Walkmans? Did you ever try to put one in, like, on your hip or in your pocket if it didn't have the skip protect? You take that first skip and you're like, oh, I've heard that verse before. And it's just like that. Worship comes up over and over and over again. This angel warns against worshiping the beast. Don't receive that mark on your forehead or on your hand because it will not be a good day for you if you do. In a nutshell. We ended last night with this, the crescendo of these passages. Here is the patience of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Because what is God saying? God is saying that he will have an end time people loyal to him in the face of the greatest opposition and the fiercest persecution in the history of the world. God will have those people. They will be there. He's looking for them right now. 
And the Bible says he will find them. Lovingly and loyally, these people live God-centered, grace-filled, obedient lives. These committed followers of the Savior not only will have faith in Jesus, because remember, saved by grace through faith, faith in Jesus as your Savior, but they will also have the faith of Jesus. Jesus' quality of end-time faith will be theirs. But what does that faith look like? Jesus, hanging on the cross and shrouded in darkness, he bore the guilt, he bore the shame, he bore the condemnation of the sins of the world. We read in the Bible that a great darkness settled over that area of the world, and he cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He did not sense, he did not see, he did not recognize the presence of his heavenly Father whom he had never been separated from before. He couldn't see it, couldn't feel him. And so he cried out in desperation, seemingly shut off from his Father's love. Jesus depended on the relationship that he had shared with the Father throughout his life. To depend on his emotions would have been an absolute spiritual disaster. It would have been. While Jesus was hanging in the darkness, suspended between earth and heaven, he had to recall all of those times when his father spoke from on high and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He couldn't feel it but he remembered those words. He didn't have that great, lofty, high moment that we think of as a, as a mountaintop Christian experience. Jesus was certainly not there. But even though he didn't feel it, he knew it. And that knowing, despite how he felt, is what got him through because that meant that the Savior trusted his Father. It meant that Jesus trusted God. Even when he could not discern the future, he, didn't, he, he was as mortal as we are. He could not actually see what was going to happen once his blood finally drained out of his body. He trusted his father. He believed when there was little evidence for belief. He trusted when all around him the circumstances cried out for him to doubt. And not only the circumstances, but he had a few people helping him along with that. Have you ever had people help you along with your doubt rather than encourage you in your faith? Have you ever gone through that? Have you ever had those moments where you're just going through day-to-day life and it's, it's a low day? It feels like you've had 31 Mondays in a row. <laughs> Nothing good. I feel alone. I feel down. I feel like I'm messing up at every turn. My family don't really call me a lot. My friends have moved. I don't hear God talk to me even if I pray or read my devotions. It just seems a little empty. You ever had those feelings, those moments? You ever wondered that? It is in those times when we need the faith of Jesus as much as the faith in Jesus. The Desire of Ages writes uh, something very beautiful. 
she says, amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance heretofore given him. He was acquainted with the character of his father. Are you becoming acquainted with the character of your heavenly father? Jesus understood God's justice, God's mercy, God's great love. Are you learning how to understand those three things? By faith, Jesus rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. Is the same true of us today? And, in, and as in submission, he committed himself to God. The sense of the loss of his father's favor, favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was victor. Christ was victorious in faith in the way that Adam failed. Eve gave over to her senses. She looked at the fruit and saw that it was beautiful and desirable to eat. And then Adam lost, his senses, or lost himself to his senses in thinking, I'm going to believe my wife. How can I be alone without her? Even if I have God, I'm going to follow after her. Those emotions, that fear, caused the downfall of mankind. And it was to counter that, that Jesus was faithful. Because in submission, he committed himself to God the way that Adam and Eve should have, the way that you and I should today. And like Christ, we can be victorious. The faith of Jesus is a faith so deep, it is a faith so trusting, so committed that all of the demons in hell and all of the trials on earth cannot shake it. It didn't get Jesus off of the cross, and it cannot trip you up. It is a faith that trusts when it cannot see, a faith that believes when it cannot understand, hopes when it cannot comprehend, and it hangs on when there is little to hang on to. That's the faith of Jesus. It is a gift itself that we receive by faith, and it will carry us through the crisis ahead. I'm so glad that you and I don't have to dig down deep and find our own little shred of faith and then try to grow it. And, and I can't keep mums alive on my front porch. And I used to be a landscaper. I am so glad that Jesus starts the faith in him. He has it. He owns it. He's perfected it. And then he gives it to you and me. He is the author of our faith. He's started that chapter in our lives. And praise God, the Bible also says he's the finisher of that same faith. Praise God that we have him to thank for this fine gift. Because in this final crisis, when the faithful followers of Christ face an economic boycott, the Bible says we're going to be unable to buy or sell, eventually threatened with persecution and death, the faith of Jesus carries them through the trials and the tribulations of earth's final hours. The faith of Jesus is immeasurable and all-important, my friends. 
the real significance of earth's final conflicts, including the mark of the beast, is a larger is in a larger context of a cosmic struggle between good and evil. Older than you and I, we are simply taking part in it. The overarching theme of Revelation is is Jesus' triumph over the principalities and the powers of hell, beginning with his right to receive worship. And I believe our first presentation, we talked about the challenge put forth by a very confused created being, Lucifer, who thought, I'm going to ascend above the other stars in the north. I'm going to sit in the heavenly thrones. I'm going to be like the most high. I know I was made, created. I know I cannot create, but guess what? I will ascend to that high and lofty position, and I will say, excuse me, God, I can do what you do. That's what started it, because what follows suit is then Lucifer demands worship. Worship. Revelation 4.11 makes this clear when it speaks of the Lord. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and power. For thou hast created all things. That's why he's worthy of our worship. And Lucifer can never be. Now Satan can never be. This cannot apply to anyone but the God of heaven. And that's why only he deserves our adoration and our praise. Throughout Revelation, worship and creation are indissolubly linked. Revelation 14.7 calls us to worship the Lord of all creation. The concept of Christ as creator is at the very heart of Sabbath worship. You're here today. On some level, you understand this, and it's good to reemphasize it. Jesus consistently underlines the significance of the day which he calls himself the Lord. I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he says. We see the Sabbath then in the context of a refuge in time that God has created through Jesus Christ to constantly remind us of our origins and his undying care. The Sabbath is an oasis in the desert of this world against the backdrop of an evolutionary hypothesis that's taken the world by storm in the last two centuries. That basically says you aren't really meant to be here, but you can be thankful that the universe burped one day and out eventually you came. It it is that silly. I, I actually don't have a problem in in thinking a little bit like that towards that theory. I would much rather consider us purposefully and wonderfully made, not an accident. The thought that we are an accident leads to things like the practice of slavery. Why not? If it's the survival of the fittest and you can conquer that man and that woman, bind them up in chains, Evolution says, have at it. 
If you accept evolution at its logical end, genocide makes sense. In other words, Hitler was not wrong, nor was the Rwandan genocide, nor was the South African problems back in apartheid states, nor were fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. The millions and millions and millions of people uh, would, would not have died, perhaps, if the idea that the survival of the fittest hadn't taken root. Theft would not probably run quite so rampant because it's all about my survival. I don't care if you have it. I, I, I need it. I need to live. I need to pass on my progenity. And then suicide. I happen to really believe that this idea that we are an accident with no purpose floating through the cosmos is, is a very depressing idea. If you live for the now, and what does it matter when you're gone? If things aren't going your way, what reason do you have to not cut it short? Doesn't matter anyways according to evolution. It, I believe it to be very insidious. But the Sabbath leads us back to our roots of God's fingerprint in every one of our lives. His image imprinted on the faces and the persons filling this room, watching us online, and walking this green earth. God's fingerprint is on each one of us, and the Sabbath reminds us of just how valuable we are. Because the Sabbath is an eternal reminder of our identity. It reminds us of who we are as humans. It places worth on every human being for being a human being. Not for what you do or how much you have or what you've done or, or, or what title comes before or after your name. That's not what gives you worth. Being a human being gives you worth because God said so. And the Sabbath tells us that. The Sabbath reinforces the idea that we are created and that our creator is worthy of our allegiance and worship. That's why the devil hates the Sabbath so much. That's why of the commandments, it's the only one that regularly comes under attack. Of the ten we discussed last night, religious and non-religious people find ways of supporting, if not all, most of the ten. The non-religious are okay with don't steal, don't murder, honor your parents, things like that. Uh, the religious can tack on worship God, don't profane his name, and so on. The Sabbath has a special distaste, if you will, for far too many people. And I believe it's because the devil dislikes it that much. Because the Sabbath tells us of our relationship to our Creator. And he has always looked to interrupt that. The Sabbath is the golden link that unites us with Christ. The faith of Jesus connects us to our Creator, the one who has also given us this faith. But, but, one of the strongest three-letter words in our language, but 
Faith and a connection to Christ do not guarantee smooth times all the time. Forget the prosperity gospel preachers. If you pay your tithe, if you profess faith in Jesus, you will have the private jets like me, they say. You will have the mansions like me, they say. You will have the $3,000. This is not a $3,000 suit. If you have a $3,000 suit like me, they say. Armani shoes and a Rolex watch like me, they say. In fact, there was a preacher. The, the clip went viral. Uh, there, was, there was a preacher, I believe in New York. Was it New York? I think it was in New York. Live streaming. And he was robbed at gunpoint during his live stream. Laid down on the floor. You can, the guy, you know, the masked robber is going around. Takes the jewelries, takes the watches, takes the valuable things. It was, remind, I keep thinking of like $30,000 of worth of product taken off the preacher. The preacher had 30K worth of jewelry and watches and accessories, not to mention who else uh, was in the, the congregation. Uh, there are those who would have you believe, contrary to what Jesus says, that it's smooth sailing when you profess a faith in Jesus. When his apostles were coming to him and then they said, you know, Lord, we want to follow you. He goes, the son of man doesn't even have a bed to lay his head on. He was warning them, if you follow after me, it may not be comfortable. Count your cost. If you are a builder and you're trying to wonder how much money I need to ask from the bank, I need to invest in new buildings and property, you write it all out and then you say, can I pay the bank back? Count your costs before you invest. The same is true in a spiritual sense. The Bible makes it clear that we are not guaranteed smooth times all the time. There is trouble ahead. The Mark of the Beast prophecy in Revelation 13 tells us about the worst, the absolute fever pitch of Satan's war against God. Because ever since Jesus died on the cross, Satan has known that he's been defeated. And there is nothing worse than a defeated foe on his last desperate grasps at trying to wreck things up. He is determined to take as many souls with him as possible. He's, he's bending his energies this way. First, the devil worked with deception through that snake in the garden. He's been very successful at deceptions. The almost truths of many things that the devil has woven around religion and spirituality and Christianity has swept millions into false error. But eventually the Bible tells us it will be by force because there will be holdouts who are not deceived. And so if it's not won by the carrot, then maybe by the stick. That's the devil's approach. The mark of the beast tells about a time when the devil will resort to force. He will use human agents, as he always has. I can't remember the last time I saw a scary-looking, shiny angel in front of me 
threatening me to do X or Z, right? How does it come? It comes through human agents that have gone along with the devil for millennia. The devil will convince them to publish a decree stating that anyone who refuses to worship the beast or receive the mark will suffer the consequences. This is nothing new. Religious persecution has happened ever since the time of Cain and Abel, the first murder recorded in the Bible. That was a religious persecution. John 16 and verse 2, Jesus says that the time is coming when whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. That's how deluded people will become. When the Bible says, thou shalt not murder, they read it and they say, well, I'm not murdering because I'm doing God's will. It doesn't make sense to me. But that's how deceived they will become. This prophecy has been fulfilled many times. In the 15th century, for example, there were valleys located high in the Piedmont Alps of northern Italy were home to a people called the Waldenses. They made the Bible their rule of faith and their practice. They copied it. <coughs> they sent out their young men to sell these precious scriptures, spreading the good news that salvation is a gift of God's love to anyone that they met. They, they sewed them in between the layers of their clothing, the inner lining and the, the outer lining. Between had the copies of the scriptures that if they found someone that they could trust maybe, that they could have a conversation with, and they said, ah, this is a person that the Holy Spirit has led me to, they might tear open a little seam and pull out a little fragment, a little passage of the Bible. Here, this is for you, they would say. It's got good news. You will love it. And they did that. Because of this practice, because they rejected the doctrines and the dictatorship of the official state church of the time, the fires of persecution blazed against them over and over again. In 1488, the Waldenses in the valley of Lois hid in a large cave to escape the soldiers. It seemed like a safe place. Usually holding up in a cave in the mountains in the wilderness is a safe place to hide. But the enemies found them, and they laid an enormous pile of wood at the mouth of the cave, and they set it ablaze. 3,000 people died that day from the smoke, from the fire. Yeah, just because they wanted to share fragments of the Bible, which broke the law of that time. Another wave of persecution came in the 17th century when the Duke of Savoy sent an army of 8,000 into their territory, and they demanded that the local populace quarter the troops in their homes. I'm sending my troops your way. It would be really good if you put them up for food, for bedding, for a little shelter from the weather, he said. But he did this not out of, I guess, a kind request, but it was a strategy to give the soldiers easy access to the victims. Because on the 24th of April, 1655, at 4 a.m., a slaughter occurred, leading to the death of more than 4,000 faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Deception, and then the slaughter. Trust us, we won't hurt you. 
only to be hurt in the most egregious way. Lest you think, yeah, but this was all a long time ago. Surely that does not still happen today. We are in the 21st century. We are in the modern era. We are an advanced civilization of people where we respect differences of religion all over the globe. Well, according to Open Doors USA, which keeps track of Christian persecution around the world, we read things like this. 312 million Christians in the world experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. That is roughly one in seven Christians around the world. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. 5,898, that's the number of Christians killed for faith-related reasons. 5,110, the number of churches and other Christian buildings that, uh, that have been attacked. Uh, recently, in North America, um, pregnancy centers, many of which are supported by a faith-based institution, have been firebombed, have been, have been attacked, have been vandalized, have been threatened, and the people that are threatening it are very open about it. They say, yeah, we're the ones that are doing it all. Uh, that's on our shores. 4,765, the number of Christians detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. That's a few. 3829, the number of Christians abducted for faith-related reasons. When do you think these statistics are from? Not this year. We don't have those yet. I'm expecting them soon. This is from the latest that we have, though. This, is, uh, this was reported during the 2022 World Watch uh, Seminar for the reporting period of October 2020 to September of 2021. In one year, these numbers uh, occurred. Uh, it is also important to note that these numbers only come from the top 50 countries with regards to Christian persecution. There are more. This is just from the top 50 countries that violate religious liberty. That's why I say we don't have it yet because I'm assuming October 2021 to September 2022 is being compiled right now. Uh, so, so perhaps we will have updated numbers. The mark of the beast prophecy is about the final link in this ungodly chain. Like the persecutions of the past, it's designed to force everyone to conform to a certain set of beliefs and an approved system of worship. The prophecy does say that persecution will start with economic sanctions. No one can buy or sell unless they have the mark. When in an ever-increasingly digitally-based currency, which is what our world is, uh, Starbucks has already gotten rid of cash. Uh, I fully expect more companies will follow suit. Uh, the interest in everything being digital uh, is certainly there. It's easy to see then how finances can become or are becoming easier to control or manipulate. If you get on the wrong side of the IRS, all it takes is someone somewhere to hit a button and all your assets are locked up like that. It, it, 
happens very rapidly. And also, have you ever noticed how long it takes to get something back into your account? They, it's super quick. If I go to the store and I buy something from Walmart, $5, that money is gone like four seconds after I swipe my car. But do you ever return it and you want your $5 back? It takes so much longer to, to correct that. If they want to turn it off, it will happen like when they pull the money out. Like that. And the more and more and more that we only operate in the digital world, the easier this will become. When this happens, the great majority will capitulate, and eventually anyone who refuses will be placed under a death penalty. We read this from Testimonies, Volume 5 and page 81. The time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. Those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be rather than subject themselves to derision, insult, threatened imprisonment, and death. The devil is preparing even professed Christians by small, frequent compromises in their lives. That, that death by a thousand cuts, if you will. Uh, the devil is preparing them to receive the mark of the beast when the final test comes upon us in the future. Those of us that might be a stickler over, I can't, I can't even waver on this little thing. And someone will say, but it's only a little thing. Why can't you just relax a little on it? Why are you so stubborn in conserving even the tiny things? I will say, well, because when you give up this one tiny thing, they expect you to give up the next tiny thing. They expect you to give up the third and the fifth and the fifteenth. And the moment you have, and then you try to say, no, not now, they will say, you hypocrite, you did for all the rest of it. It happens. I would, I would rather be able to stand and say, I haven't ever given up those things, and I won't start today. I would much rather say, I have been very consistent in my words, and I'm simply going to follow through now like I have before. Because the devil would love us to just give an inch because he's ready to take the mile. He's ready for it. He's itching for it. But God's love for us will not let us be unprepared, which is why he sent these three angels with these important messages. He sent them directly from heaven's throne, flying in the midst of heaven, high, loud voice. You're supposed to pay attention. He wants to warn us regarding what is coming. As you are listening to these presentations, as we've been discussing persecution and threatening loss with our finances and liberty and so on, you might be tempted to think that this is, that this is just an all-out attempt at frightening you into choosing God instead of something else. Uh, there are certainly sermons and speakers and times in the Christian history where the fear of the punishment or the fear of something was the great motivating factor. 
Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is a rather detestable sermon built around that idea. Be so afraid of violating God's love because he will just torment you with glee forever. Don't do that, the sermon says. Of course God doesn't take any delight in what happens when people sin. Don't think that of your heavenly Father. But this message is not about trying to get us to be afraid. You do not have to be frightened into joining God's side, and it may be hard to believe, but this is a message of encouragement. It is. It's a message of encouragement. These messages are intended to encourage us <coughs> when the persecution is at its maximum, when it appears that the whole world is following the beast in wondering admiration. Suddenly the scene changes and the prophetic camera turns to focus on God's people. Revelation 14, 12, a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. What are God's people doing? They are clinging to Jesus in the face of an economic boycott and an international decree. They are living lives of godly obedience. They are God's honor convoy. They reveal the power of grace in a hostile world, and they shine as lights in a world of darkness. They stand firm when all around them, everything is shaking. Revelation shows two groups of people at the end. One, all the world marvels and wonders and follows after the beast. Our third angel tells us what happens to those folk, and it's not where you want to be found. Two, that God's faithful people follow the Lamb wherever He goes. While the world is following the beast, God's people follow the Lamb. I have, I have seen a Lamb. They're so cute. They're so kind. A Lamb is an animal that I wouldn't mind following after, especially when it's the Lamb of God. A beast is ugly and gross and detest. Don't wander after that. Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4, or actually just, just verse 3, says that God's people cry out, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Love is the great motivating force of the kingdom of God. This age-long drama, this cosmic conflict, will one day come to a conclusion. It will. The universe will be secure forever when every person on planet Earth has had the opportunity to respond to God's love and give their total allegiance to Him. That's what he's waiting for. The people of Israel couldn't understand Moses' delay on the mountain. God's people today sometimes can't understand Christ's delay in returning. His delay is so everyone has a chance to choose him. That's why. So we should be eagerly looking forward to his return, not looking to another God. And in the meantime, we should be pledging our allegiance to him. Let us go back in our imagination more than six millennia ago to a conflict that began in heaven. 
Lucifer, an angel of magnificent glory, created perfect, waged war against the government of God, a government not filled with corrupted bureaucrats, but based on love and led by a holy and loving and perfect God. The basic issue in this cosmic conflict was loyalty and obedience to God. Lucifer, the created being, desired to usurp the authority of God and claimed before all of the heavenly beings that God's commands were arbitrary, made up, on a whim, and that he, Lucifer, knew better and could do better, and he wasn't like that unjust God. That was Lucifer's claims. Lucifer was so successful at this kind of deceitful rhetoric that one-third of the heavenly hosts believed him. In glory and holiness, seeing God himself, a third of the heavenly angels believed the lie. They did believe that God's commands restricted their freedom. In Scripture, there are multiple names for this fallen angel, Lucifer. He is called Satan, the devil, the deceiver, which is a, a literal translation of Satan, the dragon, and the serpent of old. That would be the serpent from Eden. Down through the ages, Satan's strategy has been to lead God's people to disobey God's commands. Satan did this with Adam and Eve in Eden, with Israel throughout the Old Testament. In the early centuries of the Christian church, he also influenced church leaders with a deception uh, in order to compromise biblical principles. That deception... That long chain of attacking God through his people culminates in the mark of the beast. It will happen. It is not happening right now, but we can take God at his word. It will take place. Sometimes we, we go, well, if we don't know exactly how, then maybe it just won't. That's fanciful. I don't have to know all of the minutiae of how something will be because God has not been proven false yet. And if he's been true in everything else before, why now would I say he won't be true about this? The mark of the beast will happen. The book of Revelation predicts the final conflict. The dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Satan is angry with the woman, God's church, his people. By enforcing the mark of the beast, Satan will attempt to destroy them. However, God will have an end time people that are loyal to him in the face of the greatest opposition and the fiercest persecution in the history of the world, which is why we heed his call. If you love me, keep my commandments. God's people find their greatest joy and their highest delight in worshiping him. This is encouraging news, my friends. We have studied three angels. We have studied three messages, but really it's one message. What is that one message? 
God in the first part of it says that I, God, have a faithful people who are saved by grace and will carry my gospel to the whole world. Next, he says, I, God, have a faithful people who are saved by grace and they worship me as creator. I, God, have a faithful people who are saved by grace and are not caught in religious confusion. I, God, have a faithful people who are saved by grace. They do not worship the beast and its image, but they remain faithful to me even under duress. I, God, have a faithful people who are saved by grace, and because of their love for me, they keep my commandments and the faith of Jesus Christ. That's our one message. I, God, have a faithful people. So what is the final call? If that's the one message, what is the final call? Well, like the call given to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, who is on the Lord's side? That's the final call. Like the call given to Israel of old, God hollers through the corridors of heaven to Israel today, you and I, and asks, who is on my side? My friends, you and I have a decision to make. We have two options, two directions that we could go, two paths that we could take. Which way will you go? Which decision will you make and which path will you walk down? Are you on the Lord's side? Will you stand with Him? Will you stand with Him no matter what comes? Because the Bible says that He is faithful and just and He will see you through to the end. Are you on God's side? If you are, I would encourage you to stand with me, and and by doing so, you indicate you are standing by him. You are standing by him as he calls out, are you on my side? Because he is on your side. Let us stand and have have our closing prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouraging words today. We thank you that as we understand tough times are to come. By faith, we claim the promise that we don't have to face it alone. You are with us all the way through to the end. Lord, we praise you for the faith of Jesus. We praise you for his his infinite sacrifice on our behalf, and we praise you for being a creator God who loves us. Lord, be with us today, and may we always remain faithful to you. This is our prayer, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.